Luke 24. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you, while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, and be crucified, and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them, who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word, before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back, saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. And as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened, and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, 
that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and were continually in the temple, blessing God. Thank you, Hintz family. That was wonderful. I just realized I left my keys on my belt. Just call me the custodian. No, it's fine. Thank you, though. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Luke 24. If you're visiting with us today, my name is Pastor Scott. I'm so happy that you're with us here on this Resurrection Sunday. Um, We're going to take a few minutes this morning before we break up and go about our day to get into God's Word. As a reminder, Paul wrote these words in 1 Corinthians 15, and this kind of points to the reason why the resurrection of Jesus is such a big deal to Christians and why, uh, why Easter uh, or Resurrection Sunday is the pinnacle of our calendar uh, for the year. 1 Corinthians 15, 13 through 15 says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. As you can see or as you can hear from the text, uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is a big deal. It signifies that what he did on the cross three days ago on Good Friday was approved by God and God was in it because he rose him He allowed him to rise from the dead. Well, in our world that we're living in today, we are gradually uh, detaching ourselves more and more from the idea idea that there is a God. Um, This this gathering of Christians on Resurrection Sunday is becoming increasingly countercultural. One of the scholars of our day, he's alive and still speaking today, is Sam Harris, And Sam Harris uh, said this, the problem with religion, because it's been sheltered from criticism, which I would debate him about that, but the problem with religion, because it's been sheltered from criticism, is that it allows people to believe in mass what only idiots or lunatics could believe in isolation. And I'm assuming, I'm going to make an assumption here, that, that one of the things that Sam Harris is referring to there when he talks about the things that idiots and lunatics believe is the resurrection of Jesus Christ 
from the dead. But today we're going to talk about uh, why we believe what we believe. And this passage of Scripture that's been presented to us uh, very elegantly and thoroughly, I might add, gives us reason to believe. Now, there are those who believe that, or, or they think, that Christianity is simply a matter of faith. That we, are, we all just take a blind leap out into the darkness and believe whatever it is that we're told to believe. And I have to say to you, um, if that were true, I wouldn't be here today. I don't believe that at all. Uh, I believe that we are called upon to exercise faith, but that faith is grounded in reason and from a God who tells us to use our reasoning skills. Let me give you a couple of examples. In the prophet Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, we read this, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. In 1 Peter 3, 15, we see this, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. We are called upon to ask questions. I don't want anybody in this room to just... Uh, and that's one of the things I love about this church, by the way, is that nobody in here uh, just is blindly accepting what I'm saying, we are actually like the Bereans, right? We go to the scriptures to see if the things that Pastor Scott is saying is true. And so not only are we to reason together, and not only are we to use our brains, but we are to hone our skills so that when we come into contact with people who don't know Christ, to say, well, why do you believe? When they ask us, why do we believe? That we can actually make a good argument, that we can give a defense. So that's what the Bible says. But we are still living in the after effects of not only the Protestant Reformation, right? Uh, the, not only the Protestant Reformation, but also the Enlightenment. And there are more and more voices, Enlightenment voices, I would say, that are pushing us as a culture away from God and pushing us towards the idea, the concept, that with simply science and reason alone, we can progress as people. That is a load of malarkey. And the reason that it's a load of malarkey is because there's something about us that isn't right. There's something about us that's completely broken. If, if we, when we get together and we use our thinking and reasoning and scientific skills to, to do good things and to, and to come together, then, then our cities should be meccas of social progress and, you know, should be awesome. But that's not the state of our cities today in this country. Not at all. In many of the cities, what we see is decay and crime. And, and so what is it? What is it? And what, what is it that would push us to the idea that we need not just reason, but faith? Well, let's get into this text today, and then we'll talk about it. The big question that we're going to wrestle with today is this. What evidence is provided to us for the resurrection of Jesus Christ? What evidence is provided to us for the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Now, you may not have seen this in the text as the Hintz family was reading through it, but let's just, I think there's four things this morning that we can really look at and see. The first thing we can see is the physical evidence. The physical evidence. In, in verses 1 through 12, we see the empty tomb. Uh, we see the empty tomb. Now, Historically speaking, if we go back and we think about what was going on during the time of Jesus, 
Historically, we learned that crucifixion was a real way of dealing with criminals, a real way, a method of execution. They really did practice that. If you go to Israel today and you get on the tour bus, which I had the opportunity to do back in 11, 2011, and you ride around the country, you will see off to the side of even the roadways, you'll see hewn into the rock holes that are roughly large enough to fit one human being, and then around either a round stone there, sitting off to the side, or perhaps shattered on the ground, or perhaps missing, but you'll see a round stone, and what those are, are those are tombs. Those are ancient tombs. And you will learn, if you study your history, that, <clears throat> that when someone died in that culture, they would put them into that tomb, they would anoint their body with spices and so on to mitigate the unpleasantness, they would put the body in that tomb, roll the stone there, and then wait for about a year. And then they would roll that stone back away. They would collect the bones, put the bones in a special container, and bury that container, and, that's, and mark it. And that's how they would, per, that was the real practice back then. And so when we read about Jesus being placed in a tomb, we read about the ladies going to prepare spices and all these kinds of things. It all makes sense historically, but the biggest thing that we can take away from this passage is this, that we have four, the the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, written by either disciples themselves or close associates of the disciples, provide for us either eyewitness or nearly, you know, nearly eyewitness accounts of what happened there that t- at that time. And remember that these men, many of them, died for what they believed and what they told others. These men related that it was this Jesus that was crucified. It was this Jesus that was taken off the cross. It was this Jesus that was put in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. And that same tomb was the tomb where the ladies arrived to find it empty. The same tomb that the ladies arrived and found the linens folded up and set off to the side, the same tomb that these men, these two men, spoke to them. Now, this triggers our reasoning skills to go, what happened? How is it that this man who these four eyewitness or near eyewitness accounts say was buried in this particular tomb, is gone. Some gospel accounts tell us that a guard was stationed there because, you know, the pilot or they were worried, uh, some were worried that uh, somebody might try to do some grave robbing and then make an assertion that Jesus had raised from the dead. So they wanted to guard against that. Even despite all this, they get back there and the tomb is empty. Now, in each one of these four points, I'm going to bring up, I'm going to bring up what I'm calling a callback or a reference back to something previous. And each each one of these four points, there's a there's a callback to something previous. And so, what's the callback here? The callback is to Jesus' words. The two men that are in there that say, "Hey, who are you looking for? You looking for Jesus? He's not here. He's risen." And then they say they say this. Let me turn back. They say this, remember how he told you when he was in Galilee, 
that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words and they returned from the tomb and they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. This idea that Jesus was going to be put into the tomb, you know, die and on the third day rise again, this is not something that Jesus just came up with. He just cooked up spur of the moment, right? This is something that he's been telling his disciples about uh, for a while. Here we go. Here are some references, and there are others, but here are some references or allusions that Jesus made to the fact that this was going to happen. In John chapter 2, Jesus said to them, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Oh, sorry. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised up from the dead, the disciples remembered that he had said this, then they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Matthew 20. Jesus says this, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man must be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Mark 8:31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. There's physical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But if that weren't enough for you, there's also scriptural evidence. And this, and here we're talking about the road to Emmaus. So you see what's happening here. We've read about it. Uh, these two followers of Jesus, not one of, the, uh, not one of the 11, but these two followers of Jesus are making their way back. All these events have taken place, and they're making their way back, presumably home, to Emmaus. And on the road to Emmaus, they encounter a man that they don't recognize to be Jesus, right? And uh, Jesus is kind of testing them to see, hey, what's going on here, right? He's testing them. And they said, what's, you don't understand? what You're visiting Jerusalem? You don't understand what happened? And then Jesus begins to go into the Old Testament. He goes into the Scriptures. Well, what Scripture did they have at that time? They didn't have the New Testament. All they had was the Old Testament. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is a New Testament concept, right? No, it's also talked about in the Old Testament as well. There are many passages in the Old Testament that point forward to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So Jesus, walking with these two disciples who don't know who he is, on the road to Emmaus, begin to unpack all of these glorious Old Testament passages, and there are more. This is just a little bit, right? So, for example, in the third chapter of the Bible, in the third chapter of the Bible, after Adam and Eve had rebelled against God, he says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman, he's talking to Satan, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, meaning deal a fatal blow, 
and you shall bruise his heel, meaning deal a non-fatal blow. And then, of course, we, we understand now, right? With, on this side of the resurrection, we understand that Satan did try, and he, in fact, did kill Jesus, but Jesus did not stay in that grave. He resurrected on the third day. In Psalm 16, one of the Psalms, uh, the whole Psalm, it could be argued, is about the resurrection or points to it, but verse 10 is extremely poignant. It says, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, the grave, or let your Holy One see corruption. This is pointing to the coming of the resurrection. Isaiah, the prophet, uh, chapter 26, verse 19, Your dead shall live, your bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for the dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. And again, how is it? There's no human being that's ever defeated death. We all die. That's it. But Jesus was the first fruits. He was the first one. And those that follow him will be resurrected also someday. Daniel chapter 12. And many of those who fought, uh, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Again, pointing to the resurrection. Job 19, 25 to 26. I, for I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. There's a lot of theology in there, but I know my Redeemer lives, and at last he will stand upon the earth. And then Ezekiel 37, the story of the Valley of Dry Bones, verse 10 is, is, is relevant. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them. This is the bones that have now stood up and formed themselves into human form. And they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Our God is able. Our God is able. And he did exactly as Jesus said he was going to do. He died, and he, on the third day, he rose again. All the Old Testament scriptures point to this reality. Ever since the fall of man, when sin entered the world and caused us to have this sickness called sin in our lives, God was making a way for us to have new life and a restored relationship with him. But in order for that to be accomplished, someone perfect had to die. And that perfect man was Jesus. Now, in this, uh, in this account, of the, there's a callback here, too. In the callback and the road to Emmaus, there's this, there's this scene where the, the, these disciples invite Jesus in. They don't know it's Jesus yet. And uh, it seems like he's going to go farther, but they want to practice hospitality. So they, no, no, come on in and stay with us. And they bring him in and he, they have a meal and he breaks the bread. And somehow when he breaks the bread and blesses it, it reminds them. It, it, it opens their eyes to see. It's a callback to the Last Supper, right? It's the callback to the supper that, that Jesus had with his followers before um, before the, uh, his arrest. They recognized him as Jesus. Well, the third 
the third piece of evidence that we see in this text. Okay, so we've seen the physical evidence, right? And we've seen the, um, we've seen the scriptural evidence. Now we see the relational evidence, the relational evidence. And this is where Jesus is appearing to the, to the disciples, uh, beginning in verse 36. He's appearing to his disciples. Now, there's all these conspiracy theories. I find it funny going back to the quote that we first shared about Sam Harris that uh, somehow that religion has been sheltered from scrutiny. Uh, I have found that Christianity is one of the most scrutinized things on the face of this planet. I mean, people ask questions to it all the time. And one of the things, one of the conspiracy theories that's out there is that this person who was resurrected wasn't really Jesus. It was really like a, a double right? Somebody who was like dressed like Jesus, act like Jesus, all these kinds of things. Well, uh, one, I guess, could believe that until you remember this piece, of, this passage of scripture right here, where Jesus appears to his disciples, the men that he's been spending the last few years with, day and night, the, the men that he's been spending uh, all this time with teaching and working miracles and having difficult conversations these men, I would, my brain tells me, my reasoning skills tell me, would not be fooled by an imposter. They know him. And, uh, you know, there's a part of me that speculates a little bit and says, you know, that, that Peter is like, okay, come here, come here, come here. Okay, remember the time when we were up on the mount and something happened and there was like some glorious figures. Remember who they were? Uh, rem refresh my memory. Well, it was a lie. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, this is the guy. This is Jesus right here. <laughs> you know, uh, he, this is him. So they knew him. They knew him. There's a callback in this one, too, and the callback is when Jesus puts out his hands and, and says, look at my hands, look at my feet. There's a callback to the cross, his wounds, from crucifixion. And then in the last in the last piece of evidence that we see here, well, we, we know that the tomb is empty, right? We know that the Old Testament scriptures pointed to the fact that the tomb was going to be empty. And we know that the disciples, his closest followers, recognized this man who was resurrected as Jesus. But just to make sure that it, this was real, this wasn't a trick, that this is really God in the flesh, we also have, finally, supernatural evidence. And this is, this is the ascension of Jesus. I have been in the ministry for, I don't know, 19 years, something like that, in a full-time capacity. And uh, you know what I've never seen? I've never seen somebody grow older and then just walk out into the parking lot of the church and then just go up to heaven. Never seen it. It's never happened. Uh, people die. People die and, and, and we have funeral services and, and we, we place their, their body in the ground in some way, shape, or form. That's the way this goes down. And yet what we have here is we have evidence, again, from multiple witnesses that Jesus went out, and as when he went out, he ascended, he was carried up into heaven. Now, 
That doesn't make any sense to my reasoning brain until <laughs> I realize that we're talking about God here and that God, who is the creator of the universe, the, the creator of all things, the one that wrote the very source code, if you will, of this universe, can make that happen. Jesus often worked miracles, and I often say to you that one of the things that those miracles did was to validate and verify that he was who he said he was, because nobody else can do these things, right? These weren't parlor tricks. These weren't the magicians of Pharaoh doing this and that. that Jesus did miracles, and these miracles were recorded for us to read about. And here's one more. He ascended into heaven. Now, uh, what's this a callback to? Can you think of anybody else in the scriptures that's ascended into heaven? Well, my brain thought of Elijah. Elijah, if you go back to 2 Kings chapter 2, you'll read about Elijah's being carried up to heaven in a chariot of fire. And here we see Jesus. Jesus doesn't we, we presume that after Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead, for example, that Lazarus died again. Not so with Jesus. Uh, his time on the earth in, in his physical form ended when he went up, when he was uh, carried up into heaven. Now, let's think about these things quickly before we end our time today. We've talked about physical evidence, we've talked about scriptural evidence, we've talked about relational evidence, we've talked about supernatural evidence. Why are these things important? I believe, and I think that the world around us, if we, if we really observe the, the world around us, you can, you can see as well that science and reason and logic alone are insufficient to explain what's going on in this world. There's so many things that are broken, so many things that are, so many institutions that are corrupted. There are things that you and I do, and we do them, and then we go, why did I do that? That was foolish. That was not what God says is right. And the, and the reason for these things is because we are spiritual beings. We do have a sickness condition called sin. Anything that we think, say, or do that displeases God. And God has created us, and God has sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross, which we, sell, which we commemorated on Good Friday, to die on the cross to make payment for our sins. And what he promises for us is that if we will follow him, he will give us the Holy Spirit in our lives. And Using the Word of God, the Bible, as our guide, we can follow Jesus in this life and we can be transformed to be more like Him. It's a slow process, a gradual process. It comes in fits and starts, but that's, that's what He promises. And He asks us to follow Him by faith. But again, the faith that he asks us to follow, that he asks us to have in order to follow him is a faith based on reason. There's evidence. There's real things that we can look at to see that these things are true. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, 
the conviction of things not seen. Jesus is not with us today in physical form. We can't talk to God in such a way that he talks back to us with an audible voice. He does speak to us through his word, but we're not living in a time where we're living by sight. We're living in this time, we're living by faith. But as we read in the pages of scripture, God has done so much to help us to see that he is real. Faith informs our reason and reason informs our faith. And as our society detaches itself from God and moves further and further into trusting in science and reason and logic alone, we see uh, problems. For example, we see uh, as governments do this, as academia does this, as, as political folks do this, as they move away from God and they move into the realm of logic and reason, all of a sudden, all of a sudden, they need to come up, they need to make a moral decision. And that moral decision is no longer grounded on what is right according to God's word. It's grounded on what's right according to some experts. And oh, how have we, I hope that you, I don't need to fill in any holes here. Oh, how we see that that is not working well. Let me try to illustrate it if I can. In the world of academia, we're, we're getting further and further away from the truth of God's word, and we're being told to believe all kinds of theories about the way that the world works. And so I came up with a, well, I didn't actually come up with an example. A mathematician came up with this example, and I'm just going to share it with you. So let's say that we're, we're living in this world, we are, and let's say that a, a group of academics put their heads together and, and decided that automobiles in all of their manifestations, internal combustion, electric, whatever, they're all bad. They're all bad. And there's expert consensus amongst academia that they're all bad. And that we as human beings need to free ourselves from the automobile. And the Secretary of Transportation of the United States makes a uh, initiative that we need to detach ourselves from all vehicles. Okay. Then, the first thing, the first message that we're going to hear is we're going to hear that uh, if you drive this, uh, a certain car, you're an evil person, you're a hater, whatever. We're, we're going to call this, by the way, we're going to call this a critical car theory. Can we call it that? Criti meaning we're going to be critical of all things car, right? So we're going to start doing this, and then we're, you know, if we're going to start shaming people who drive cars, and then we're going to start uh, name-calling people that drive cars, ostracizing people that drive cars. But you know what? Cars aren't, aren't the only problem. Car manufacturers are the problem. And so we're going to go to the car manufacturers, and we're going to just, just heap taxes and regulations on them until they go bankrupt and they close. And then all the legacy cars that are left out there in the, in the field if we haven't been able to shame and ostracize and call names enough, well, then what we'll do is we'll get a hold of the employers and we'll say, if you have any employees that are driving cars, boy, make sure that they're fired or, or somehow punitively harmed. And you know what? It's not just the cars and the, the people that drive the cars and the, automo and the car manufacturers that are the problem. I tell you, it's the people that make these streets that the cars drive on. Those are the ones that we got to penalize. Those got to go away immediately because if there's no street, then you can't drive cars on anywhere. And so let's penalize all the people that are building our roads. And 
Let's go after the asphalt people too. Let's not, not forget about them. And on and on it goes. And you can imagine very quickly that this way of thinking will spread all throughout until everybody and everything is bad. Everything is, and you know, everything is, is everything can be housed under the umbrella of critical car theory. It can be demonized and it can be done away with. That type of thinking is what happens when we detach ourselves from a God who helps us to understand what is right and what is wrong, including uh, how we ought to think about others, how do we think about our own sin, and the reality of sin in this world, and that we're never going to reach utopia here until sin is eradicated, and that's not going to happen until Christ returns. Here's kind of a chart that I think is helpful to understand what I'm saying. If we just go into the whole area of science and logic and reason and we leave God behind, the God, who, uh, the God who helps us to understand that we do have a sin problem and has taken care of that sin problem in Christ, then we will go through this circle. Number one, we will negate reality. In other words, we'll, we'll, whatever reality is, we'll pretend like that's not really happening and then we'll create a new reality of our own. This is happening right before our eyes, by the way, out there in the world. We will negate reality. We will create a reality. Uh, uh, we will imagine a new reality. And then thirdly, we will endow that imagined reality. We'll, we'll make it seem real by like, associating it with pieces of the real world. You know, it's got just enough of an... The narrative has just enough reality embedded in it to make it sound good but it's not real. It's not, it's not congruent with real life as we practice it. I'm not going to fill in too many holes here, but you can see that a life, a, a life a detached from God, a life where we don't have any objective standard of what is good and what is right and what is holy, a, a, a world that forgets that we are corrupted at our very core level by our sin is a world that could spin out of control very quickly. And so what we do here by placing our faith in Christ and following him is an extraordinarily important thing. Some scholars believe, I happen to be, I'm not a scholar, but I happen to believe a person who believes this, that Christianity is what has created Western culture. It's not perfect, but it's a culture that, it's a culture that, recognizes, or at least it did at one time, the value of faith and reason. And that these two things come together to bring us what is true. So, back to 1 Corinthians 15. I said, uh, Verse 14 says, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Fast forward to verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, Adam, by a man, Jesus, has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. 
This thing that we're talking about this morning, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, is extremely important. And the answer to the question today, what evidence is there, is that there's a panorama of evidence that Jesus rose from the dead. Physical evidence, scriptural evidence, relational evidence, supernatural evidence that Jesus is exactly who he said he was. The question on the table for us today is what were you going to what are you going to do with that? What are you going to do with that evidence? If you're here today and you claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ, you are you are a follower of Jesus Christ, but there's areas of your life that you have not yet yielded to him. You're not submitted to him. I want to encourage you to do that. But if you're with us today, I mean, you really have two options. You're with us today and you have not yet trusted Jesus as your Savior. You really have a couple of options, and, and that is to say, you know, I went to a great Easter service today. We sang songs of the resurrection. We smelled the lilies in the, in the, in the auditorium, and I really got to hang around with some cool people. And that's about it. That's tantamount to dismissing it. Or... You could believe it and begin your journey to grow and change and become more like Christ. To trust Jesus Christ is to be saved, rescued from your sin, and to, to be with him forever in eternity when you die. It's also to have the Holy Spirit come into your life and begin to transform you from the inside out. Into what? into just a better person, maybe more muscles from you know, going to the gym, maybe a better personality. No, to transform you into the image of Christ, to learn to love others, to truly love others sacrificially, to learn uh, what it means to suffer for something that is good. What will you do with this information with this evidence will you dismiss it or will you believe we're going to end our time before i close in prayer we're going to end our time with a song pastor brad and and nancy are going to come lead us and crown him with many crowns let's stand as we sing